welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for Umbreen Khan. December is the time when every industry or realm tallies their annual accomplishments and failures, their big deals, and their little dust-ups. Every year, the Religion News Association, the leading professional organization for journalists who cover what we believe and why, polls its hundreds of members on the religion story of the year. 2021 was a banquet of possibilities, with 30 issues and events vying for the top spot. The RNA announced the winner earlier this week, and we'll get to that in a bit. But the annual poll always gets me thinking about the role of religion in American life and what I did or did not report or write on in the previous year. It also gets me wondering about the general health of religion journalism and whether or not it is relevant in a time when, as polls keep telling us, religious attendance is at an all-time low. So I decided to assemble a far-flung roundtable of my fellow religion reporters and ask them what they think. Was this a big year for religion reporting? In a time of masks and mandates, has COVID changed the way they do their jobs? What do they single out as the biggest religion story of the year? What religion stories did we miss in the firehose of constant news? And what will they be watching for in 2022? My colleagues work for both secular and faith-based news outlets. Sometimes we agreed on how important a single story or an issue was in the past year, and sometimes we did not. But all of us returned again and again to one topic, the COVID-19 pandemic and how it is changing the way we both do and cover religion. My name is Michelle Borstein. I'm one of the religion reporters from the Washington Post, and I'm talking to you from Washington, D.C. Michelle Borstein has spent 15 of her 20 years at the Washington Post covering religion. Along the way, she has won every award there is, multiple times. About five years ago, she did a year-long fellowship at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism because she felt she needed a better handle on what we mean when we say, I cover religion. I wanted to know if life under COVID had changed what she wrote about or how she did her job this past year. She called out the rapidly changing ways people of faith adapted religious services and rituals the pandemic world. So much of how we live is changing, and then there's changes and innovations in response to that, whether that's people's disconnect with like their physical weekly house of worship, their exploration online, their questioning, their experiences shifting into like new experiential things, whether that's gardening or sensory deprivation tanks Mm -hmm. or music because they weren't in their congregations or shifting into digital world, whether that's spiritual video games or music. I just feel like our routines changed. And that is a big part of religion is like ritual and routine. And you're attributing much of that to COVID, to the pandemic? I think it was the pandemic. I mean, I think it was accelerating things that were happening, but it made things happen much more quickly. That also includes organized religious places becoming much more digital, like things that they had put off. And sort of saying, all right, we need to think in a new way about 
whether that means digital worship or doing much more activism, like what, why would people come to us now? They really don't have, now they realize just a matter of clicking a button. So I think these were all changes that were coming, but they just were accelerated a lot in 2021. Do you think that these are permanent changes or do we still have an argument for this is just a blip on the landscape? I think some of the changes are permanent. Um, I don't know that they will shift into what exactly they're shifting into yet because they may shift into worship experiences that are just not based weekly around a building or they may shift more into activism or they may shift more into small group communities, relationships that people made either digitally or like very local. But yeah, I think some of the changes are permanent. One of Michelle's 2021 favorites carried this headline. From spellcasting to podcasting, inside the life of a teenage witch. It emphasized a major theme Michelle sees in contemporary American religion, the ongoing fragmentation of faith into increasing individualized practices and beliefs. Here's an excerpt. October 31st, 2021. There are worse places than Austin to be a teen witch, with a monthly witch's market, an annual witch festival, coven meetings, and strip mall magic stores. That said, Viv Bennett keeps to social and spiritual scenes mostly online. Their excerpt, Bennett says, is culturally conservative and Christian. Bennett describes being an outcast in high school who learned to keep to themselves. The pandemic supercharged Bennett's spiritual life. They created the podcast and YouTube channel, and those social media communities in turn fueled Bennett with confidence to dress more goth and witchy and to speak out more. Bennett Online is an earnest character. One YouTube video emphasizes the importance of doing a lot of research on witchcraft. Another discusses challenges posed by the trendiness of witchcraft, tarot, astrology, and the occult in general. They suggest reducing use of social media. Commenters often address Bennett like a cool teacher or camp counselor with a bit of awe and praise. Lots of thank yous and technical questions. Can I sub rosemary for cinnamon in a spell jar for protection against curses? Even if I'm not a witch, can I still interact well with house fae or house elves if I treat them respectfully? made you want to do that story? We were doing a series at the Post about teenagers, and I could do anything that I wanted to do, but I was really like, you know what, I'd like to pick one slice of this natural, environmental kind of thing and dig into it a little bit more. So that's what prompted it. I've been wanting to look into some of these, when I say alternative, because they're really ancient, it's not like they're new, but um they're new in some ways. I mean, you have the witches of TikTok was like one of their biggest trends of the season. So anyway, I was just basically like, what's this about? What does it mean when somebody says they're a witch today? It took me a long time to sort of pick the right witch. So I like, I interviewed like dozens of people for that story. It was a beautiful way of illustrating some of the numbers. 30% of Americans now say they have no religious affiliation. Well, what does that really mean? You know, she has beliefs, but she doesn't belong to any official religious denomination. Right. But she still, right. my goodness, she was leaving offerings for the goddess when she walked her dog. Right. 
Yes, he's very, very, very. connected to these uh, gods and goddesses. Very much so. Yeah. We used to be able to find some stories by, you know, going into a house of worship on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Maybe, mm-hmm. We, you know, how do you find yeah, what people are doing? Hard. It's really hard. I so, don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that the ability for us to feel that we're speaking with authority about things is difficult, but that's not unique to our beat. Mm. You know, I mean, there's these whole zillions of worlds going on that are morphing all the time. It's not clear their staying power. It's not clear their leadership. It's not clear their beliefs or dogma. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it's hard to know if a story is very authoritative. One cool reporting alternative is, you know, there has been a reliance in some ways on data. And I think, you know, reporting is at its heart, you know, you're not supposed to like start with the data, right? You're supposed to start with the reporting. So, I mean, I feel like it gives you almost a license to dig more deeply into individual stories. Bobby Ross Jr. is another much lauded religion reporter. Just this past year, the Christian Chronicle which is associated with the Churches of Christ, was named the best newspaper in its home state of Oklahoma. Have you found that the COVID pandemic has changed the way that you go about doing your work? It definitely did for about a year. You know, I think from starting maybe January 2020 to May of of 2021, I basically did my job sitting in my house and didn't Mm -hmm. go into the office and didn't travel anywhere, which was really strange. In, In some ways, it was helpful because in some ways, you can actually become lazy by being able to get stuff on the scene and remember, you know, just how much information you can really get sitting in your living room if you have to, that you don't necessarily have to get on a plane to get a good story. I have found it's really hard to capture by phone or by Zoom that intimate connection to their beliefs. What my journalism professor used to call that that ritual moment when the subject of whatever story you're pursuing, something changes for them because of their religious beliefs or they perform something in front of you and there's that mystery in the air. How do I see that over the phone? How do I see that via Zoom? If I call somebody up and even if I talk 30 to 60 minutes on the phone, it's not the same as showing up at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning or whenever and being with them all day. I'm sure you've experienced this, that often the most enlightening thing or the best quote or or the anecdote that you choose to use is hours later when that person is maybe maybe opening up to you a little more, feeling more comfortable with you. There's just something that you learn when you're with people and you do it in person. Exactly. Have you learned any strategies for bridging that gap? You know, I'm blessed in most cases to have time to research things where I can do some crowdsourcing and figure out whether this person has a story worth telling. I kind of 
do a little bit of advanced reporting to kind of know a little bit more about somebody before I even attempt to write the story? One of Bobby's standout stories this year marked the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, when white residents turned on their black neighbors in the Greenwood section of town. Hundreds of people were killed and many more were injured. The anniversary attracted news organizations from around the world. Here's an excerpt. At the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, two preachers, one black, one white, stand on stage at a suburban church. They face each other, hold hands, and bow their heads. Help us, Father, to learn to erase the past and live for the future as one in Christ, praised Tim Luster, the black minister. After the final amen, Luster leans forward, hugs Tim Piles, the white minister, and says softly, God bless you, man. The close-knit relationship between Luster and Piles is a testament to both ministers' focus on racial reconciliation. During the past five years, the two have talked on the telephone. They have met in each other's offices. They have shared meals at Shiloh's and Fish Daddy's, popular eateries in this area. Some of those conversations have been heartbreaking to me, Piles said, because I've heard some of Tim's experiences not just in the world, but some of his experiences in the body of Christ. Racism is real. Racism is wrong. Racism is sin, the white minister added. It deprives people of their humanity and their dignity as image bearers of the God who created them. Everybody else in the world approached it as a race story but you approached it as a religion story. Now tell me how you found that story. Tim Piles, the white minister, was actually my minister in Dallas when I worked for AP. So I've known him for quite a while. So as the anniversary approached, I just emailed a few people that I know in the Tulsa area and said, hey, do you know any interesting connections to churches or any, you know, thing that might be interesting for me to write about? And Tim kind of sheepishly replied and explained what they were doing. But, you know, I hadn't told you about it because we're really not doing this for publicity. We're, we're just doing this because we feel like it's the right thing to do. So I showed up on a Sunday morning and kind of just witnessed it all and talked to people. What did that highlight about the story that other reporters might have missed by not covering the faith angle? You know, we say that religion is always in the room and it's complicated. This was a big national story, and in my inclination, usually on a big national story, is just to see if there is a religion angle. So, you know, so as I started poking around on this one, I realized that lots of churches are coming together to say, hey, we really didn't handle this right a hundred years ago. Racism, prejudice are still issues. We need to do what we can. So it's not any genius thing where I looked and said, hey, maybe there's religion. It's just almost always there is religion if you just start poking around a little bit. Coming up, we explore more top religion stories of the year 
and look forward to 2022. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host, Kimberly Winston. Stay with us. friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host, Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for Umbreen Khan. This week, we're looking at the top religion and spirituality stories of 2021 with a cadre of religion journalists from around the country. In a few minutes, we'll get to the official top religion story of the year as voted on by members of the Religion News Association. But first, we're looking at what my fellow religion reporters picked as their favorite stories of the year. I'm Javed Kaleem. I'm a national correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. I cover racial justice. I cover the environment. I write about politics and I do a good amount of faith and religion reporting. Javed is a rock star reporter. I have story envy for his award-winning series on American Six in the trucking industry titled The Punjabi American Highway. He is a genius at finding religion stories in unlikely places. But this year, there was one place where religion's appearance caught him a little off guard. I traveled around the country uh, from March 2020 onwards through today, um, oftentimes going to religious communities to do interviews and, and meet people to talk about COVID-19 and its effect on their lives. I often heard a phrase, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. God will take care of me. I'll pray and let God decide about whether I get sick, whether I should take the vaccine. I've heard it in response to that, whether I should do a variety of things around the pandemic. I've heard this kind of language from people who are very overtly religious or very explicitly conservative, but I've heard it from people who are not too religious at all or who are very liberal also, 
one thing I think that, you know, these big moments in our lives and the world, I mean, a, a pandemic, global by nature, and the, the vast number of millions of deaths globally, and, and even more sick, and, and all the effects it's had upon us, make people take a pause and examine their relationship to, is it their creator, or is it the world at large, and the cosmos? I heard a lot of echoes of that kind of thinking and language from all kinds of people where I wouldn't always expect it, even very secular people. <laughs> um, you know, one example was I profiled a black church community in rural Florida, about 30 minutes outside of Orlando, where about 100 members of the congregation got sick from COVID-19 last fall. And like six or so died as well. And it, it was, these were all family members, grandmother, grandfather, uncle, that kind of relationship. They were all meeting in person and kind of, you know, put it all in God's hands about what would happen. They had no regrets. They were sad to miss their loved ones, but they knew they went to a better place. And later on, kind of like catched up with uh, some of the church members this spring. And I was curious if they had gotten vaccinated. And some of them told me no. Some told me yes. And other ones told me, you know, I prayed to God about whether I should do it. Uh, this one woman in particular, uh, the pastor's wife, I prayed to God. I didn't know I didn't want to do it, but I prayed to God. And then I was at Pavilions, the grocery store. And a volunteer just happened to come up to me and offer the vaccine. And so I took that as a sign from God. So I said, yes. Wow. That's not a unique story. I heard stories like that all the time. Like a lot of reporters, he wrote about the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. He could have written it as a race story. The crowd was majority white and some hurled racial epithets at Capitol Police. He could have written it as a politics story. Instead, he tapped into its faith factor in a story headlined, QAnon and other conspiracy theories are taking hold in churches. Pastors are fighting back. Here's an excerpt. The congregation was in the middle of an online service when a longtime churchgoer in her 60s texted her pastor to complain that his prayer lamenting the assault on the U.S. Capitol in January was, quote, too political. The woman later unloaded a barrage of conspiracy theories. The election of Joe Biden was a fraud. The insurrection was instigated by Black Lives Matter activists and Antifa activists disguised as Donald Trump supporters. The FBI was in on it all. The day would soon come, she said, when, quote, when all the evil, the corruption, would come to light and the truth would be revealed. Startled and moved to tears, Pastor David Rice told the woman she had been, quote, tricked by lies. Quote, you need to know how crazy this is, he said to his congregants at Markey Church in Roscommon County, Michigan, a rural region of about 25,000 residents that voted two to one for Trump. Quote, you have been with my family and in my home, and I care for you, but you are dabbling in darkness. You are telling me it's giving you hope. I'm telling you as your pastor that it's evil. The two haven't spoken since. How did you come across that story, and did it take you anywhere that you didn't think you were going to go? I actually have to credit another colleague in the religion reporting world, Jack Jenkins, who is an amazing, amazing reporter at Religion News Service immediately after the January 6th attack. He went into all the images that were circulating, and he found several of the religious elements or components. And I saw that, and I thought, well, I wonder... Um, how this extends beyond just that day and right there. Because many of the people who went to D.C., they traveled a long ways to get there. 
so I, I began looking on Twitter, on Facebook. I, I began just kind of typing in keywords, uh, on church, pastor, sermon, I'm reading sermons and videos. And I um, pretty easily found a variety of pastors who had been speaking out in various ways. That article leads with a pastor in rural Michigan, a young guy in his 30s um, with an older congregation. And he, um, he told me they've been meeting via Zoom and he's been struggling because he's always getting asked about his conspiracy theories. Um, and nobody says QAnon or, or labels it that way. It's just, but he knows where it really ends up coming from. And I heard that kind of discussion over and over again from pastor in Missouri, uh, various others elsewhere. And oftentimes you don't have to try hard to find the religion angle. It's very much there right in front of you. Nicola Menzies' focus as a religion reporter is laser sharp. She is the founding editor of Faithfully Magazine, which covers Christian communities of color and their allies. That means she makes an effort to look away from the dominant religion stories of the day in favor of less examined, but just as important, corners of the beat. The dominant stories do tend to be, for obvious reasons, what's going on with white evangelicalism, right? Mm -hmm. um, so try, I, I try my hardest to resist <laughs> some, some of what's happening there because you can get sucked in and next thing you know, you're, you know we're doing what everyone else is doing which is not our, our, our operating mission. And that means that Faithfully has not turned a lot of its attention to COVID. We haven't really focused on that because primarily when you look at the grand scheme of things, Black churches tend to do a very good job on the ground of encouraging their people to do the things that need to be done in terms of getting vaccinated. A lot of Black churches were sites, vaccination sites. Mm -hmm. um, they were equipping and informing their communities early on about how to avoid infection and whatnot. One aspect that we did do coverage on was uh, Asian American Christians and Asian American communities becoming victims of hateful violence because of the tone, uh, many would say, that former President Trump set when COVID first became a main thing, and he started calling it the China virus, right? What a terrible thing. But you don't hear them talking about COVID. That name gets further and further away from China, as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. It's a disease, without question, has more names than any disease in history. I can name Kung Flu. So that has led to a lot of hate crime against Asian American communities here. And so I think it's Asian American Christians against hate. They organized kind of out of this last year, all the violence that was happening. They formed a group and they held a major event in New York City. Here's a moment from Nicola's story titled, Asian American Christians Refuse to be Silent Amid Rise in Hate Crimes. Drew Hyun. A Korean-American has been a pastor for more than 20 years. He told Faithfully Magazine that he grew up reading anti-Asian comments and being called racial epithets. As a parent, he has had to explain to his children how they too will face such racism. Those things are deeply personal. So much of the pain and alienation that I've experienced as someone who grew up in this country to immigrant parents and now seeing those same conversations being passed down is really painful to have to talk about, Hyun said. 
He said it was high time for the experiences of marginalized Asian American Pacific Islander communities to be elevated. Doing so could help combat the model minority trope and keep AAPI people from being weaponized against other people of color. The reality is, Asian Americans have experienced a great deal of racial trauma ourselves in this country and even in the church. And I think it's a call for the people of God to really step in to listen and hear the story of the cries of Asian Americans here in the country, the Hope Church Midtown pastor said. When I looked back at some of the stories that you all did this past year, two themes, two issues uh, jumped out at me, and I want to ask you about them. One was, I'm going to call it white nationalism, and it was tied to uh, coverage of Kyle Rittenhouse, um, coverage of the Capitol riot when some of the police testified. And the other subject that I saw several stories about on your site were tragically about the deaths of pastors' children or spouses from suicide or some sort of addiction. Well, I guess I'll start with the issue of mental health, because that's something also is a publication that we want to start paying closer attention to. I guess traditionally, mental health isn't always put as a priority, especially, you know, in open discussions um, in church communities, um, especially in um, African-American faith communities. Uh, It's just not something that's readily talked about. And I believe this year we saw quite a few cases, I think some prominent cases, too, of black pastors committing suicide. Um, I think there was even a case of like a a murder suicide. And so that's just one thing I I don't think has been explored. You know, the stresses sometimes of being a community leader, a church leader, uh, the stresses and the changes emotionally, mentally, people have had to go through because of, you know, COVID and coming out of such an intense lockdown and then trying to readjust and things like that. In terms of white nationalism, it's one of those things where, again, I'm like, I don't want us to get sucked into chasing this whole what is wrong with white evangelicalism today. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, <laughs> we have to because uh, they don't exist in a bubble. It's very important to talk with the people, the historians, um, you know, uh, the scholars, the people who are focused on the history and the development and the politics um, of white Christianity in this country and how it's become basically married to nationalism. And how in a lot of cases, because of Trump, right, it's like this unification almost where you have Christians and white supremacists who are able to sit at the same table um, sometimes without objection. And then also trying to see how, of course, that's impacting ethnic minority communities. How, uh, you know, is that impacting black voters, right, when you have the Republican Party? Um, also influenced in some ways by white nationalism, right? Uh, Trying to redraw voting districts (laughs) to basically disenfranchise uh, minority voters. Um, So it all kind of falls under the same umbrella. Kalpana Jane is the religion editor at The Conversation in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
She's in charge of a stable of academics and scholars who comment on or dig up background on the religion news of the day. Among the biggest stories of the year for her was COVID spread through India and its effect on some of its people's most important religious rituals. Here's an excerpt from a story she commissioned from Emerson College professor Tulasi Srinivas. It's called, India Prepares for Kumbh Mela, World's Largest Religious Gathering Amid COVID-19 Fears, and it was published April 8, 2021. The Kumbh Mela is a Hindu pilgrimage held every 12 years at sacred Tirthas or river ford sites along the Ganges River in India. This year, the government expects over a million pilgrims a day to bathe in the sacred river. This year's events take place amid fears that a massive gathering like this could turn out to be a COVID-19 super spreader event. As the festival began, seven living Hindu saints in the city of Haridwar tested positive and 300 pilgrims were found positive during the first few days of the festival. Images emerging from Haridwar of millions of the faithful praying, eating and bathing, often maskless and in close proximity with one another, are raising fears about how the desire for the divine nectar of immortality might turn out in a pandemic year. seen the ways you cover religion change because of COVID? Do you think that we are seeing a growing recognition that religion is an integral part of most stories? I would think so. In the big legacy media, we know that the New York Times after 2016 did a rethink about its religion coverage. I mean, we wouldn't be there, we wouldn't exist if there wasn't a demand from our readers, um, you know, that there should be this kind of an explanation of religion. The fact that we continue to be funded, the fact that we have this association going on with the Associated Press and Religion News Service. So all those do speak to that. I mean, AP is expanding its coverage, right? So I do think that there is a growing sense that this is a very important area to cover and we need to cover it. Whether we are really there in terms of where media needs to be at this point of time, that's a whole another issue, right? You can have that understanding that we need to be doing more, but not have the resources to be able to do that. I've been speaking with religion journalist Javed Kalim at the LA Times, Nicola Menzi at Faithfully Magazine, and Kalpana Jain at The Conversation about their favorite religion stories of the year. When we come back, we'll look at the official top religion story of the year and ask for some predictions on the faith beat for 2022. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host, Kimberly Winston. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. 
I am your guest host this week, Kimberly Winston. We've been talking with religion reporters about the stories they did in 2021 and why. Now it's time to talk about the official top religion story of the year, as identified in a poll of the Religion News Association's members. There were 30 candidates to vote for, everything from China's treatment of the Uyghurs to Pat Robertson's retirement from the 700 Club. You can see the entire list on our website, www.interfaithradio.org. So, the top religion story of the year, as voted on by the members of the Religion News Association, is the attempted insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 2021. Was it also a politics story? Yes. Was it also a law enforcement story? Oh, yes. But to find out why religion reporters named it as the most important, significant religion story of the year, I return to the Washington Post's Michelle Borstein. Now, I want to ask you about your top pick, which was January 6th. A lot of us religion reporters ended up writing something post-January 6th about, you know, the religion emblems, imagery. I wrote a story. A bunch of people wrote a story. We all wrote something. Now, you wrote a story that I had, you know, I'm just going to say it, it knocked my socks off. It, it really did, because while the rest of us were looking at this as, look at the Christian nationalists, and what does this tell us about Christian nationalism and its place in the country? The story you wrote in July about it was, what does this say about, I think there's a quote in the story about Lone Ranger Christianity. Individualized religion. Yeah. Yes, this individualized religion. So that struck me as, okay, I didn't see this come out from anybody else. And mm-hmm. I thought it was particularly perceptive. What did your reporting tell you that January 6th, displayed, illustrated about the way we do religion in America in 2021. It took me a little while to learn about the people at Capitol that day. So I tried to dig into as many people as I could. I mean, they just had such an individualized kind of religion. It was not about, for the most part, anything connected to a church or, you know, it doesn't mean that there were some points that there were people that did go to church, but several of them were creating their own churches, basically, Mm -hmm. like one of them envisioned herself as a pastor in kind of this like individual way, not in a church. And then one of them already had like a kind of a YouTube channel where Mm -hmm. he had preaching and Sunday services and did music and stuff like that. Point is, people are kind of making their own practices what they want them to be. There's really no sort of checks and balances on them, which you didn't really have you know, I mean, there were there were some pastors there, I think, here or there, but no, like, big leaders, none of Trump's faith advisors. It was just kind of a grassroots kind of free-for-all, spiritually speaking. And I think the country's a little bit like that right now. Javed Kaleem at the LA Times picked January 6th as his top story, too. Here's why. That insurrection packed so many components of America at once into one event, so to speak. And religion was part of that. There was the God and Trump flags, but you know, there, there were people doing prayers, actually praying. Uh, 
uh, you know, for the success of this this um, this attack uh, and the new day that they were looking for in in the country. And there's recordings of that, of course. I was at once surprised by that. I was at once not surprised because as a religion reporter, I think many of us, whether we wrote about it or not, followed the Trump presidency and his two campaigns and the really racially and religiously kind of coded aspects of it, the rise of Christian nationalism and and, and such. Um, so if you're looking at that, then you weren't so surprised by those images on January 6th. But if you weren't looking at that, then it probably caught you off guard. After the insurrection on January 6th, reporters chose the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan as number two, while the Mississippi and Texas challenges to Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court came in third. Also in the top 10 were the election of the second Catholic president in American history, declining religious attendance, and the discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves at church-run schools for First Nations children in Canada. The pandemic's changes to religious practice ranked number seven, a drop from the number one spot last year. So those were the religion stories that occupied us this year. What will religion reporters be covering in 2022? Every one of the reporters we asked had a different answer. Here's Michelle again from The Post. Roe is overturned. I mean, a lot of people don't consider that a religion story. You know what I mean? They, they put it in some other category. We understand the lives of people before, during, and after birth, and that matters to us. I stand in solidarity with my sisters in Mississippi and Texas, and I demand for the Supreme Court to operate in the same spirit as is instructed through the Bible in Deuteronomy 16:19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. We are the righteous. It's what's good and evil. They always chant, my body, my choice. But I b- firmly believe that that is another body that you have to protect. That That is a form of you, but that is a different body. You have to protect that. If they don't want them, there are many, many families that can't have kids that would love to be able to adopt. Adopt them. Give them away. But there needs to be a system in place for that that they're working on. Whatever their belief system is, I feel that that they have to be honorable under the Bible in in having that baby. God has formed us in the womb. This is a life. This is something that we should be protecting. I think that could potentially unleash, you know, 
first, it could open up the door to conversations around contraception and, you know, reproductive freedoms and um, technologies. And I think that will be explosive if and when that happens. I think a lot of what's fueled more traditional religion in recent decades has been this narrative of being the outsider. Yes. You know, having your rights pushed aside and that kind of thing. And I wonder how that'll change as it becomes clear that um, religious people have a very strong position legally and politically in this country. Right. So, um, you know, whether that'll change the dynamic and the culture. So that's something I'm watching. I'm still fascinated by this shift towards, especially among young people in all these kind of nature and environmental based things. And it's a slow moving thing, but there's developments about space or neuroscience or psychedelics or whatever that I think there's just so much energy behind it. And Javid of the Los Angeles Times. My approach is like, what's going to be the big news of the nation and the world? And then what's the religion angle? That's how I always look at it. I think one thing is the climate and the environment. And there's been so much religious activism as well as reporting on this topic over the years. But I just think we as journalists need to pay more attention and do more of it. You know, I was reporting on drought in Arizona this last year, and I, I was writing about a alfalfa farmer whose farm had gone dry and dead and kind of interviewing her about, and she's very religious too, about her beliefs on on what this is all about. Um, And I was told essentially that it's horrible and she wants this to be fixed, but also God creates cycles and we got to abide by those. And I think she cited from the Bible for me. That's one example, right? But I, I think there's more to be written and reported and produced on that. At the Christian Chronicle, Bobby Ross Jr. has a long list of story possibilities. Will organized religion continue in sort of a free fall or will, if we get out of the pandemic and people feel more comfortable coming out, will we start to see some of those numbers and some of those sanctuaries filling up again? I think COVID is a big story. I think that that abortion ruling coming in June or July from the Supreme Court, that's going to be a lot of religion related questions. That's going to be a big thing regardless. I mean, we've got Midterm elections, there's evangelicals and religion, and, you know, we still haven't really determined whether facts are going to matter because, you know, we're at an era of conspiracy theories. And honestly, a lot of conservative Christian people seem to be the ones believing and or spreading what don't seem to be truthful information. So, I mean... Probably going to have just as big a news year next year as we did this year. Kalpana Jane at The Conversation says she will keep one eye on domestic religion stories and the other on international faith news. As we are moving into the new year, I'm already thinking about how we are going to plan our abortion coverage. Because as we start the next year, I see that as a big issue coming up again. I mean, it's not gone, but we'll be picking it up. So already I'm starting to plan that. As far as the rest of the world and the U.S. goes, I think some of the issues are so similar. It's like the rise of nationalism. So we are still covering that, the Christian nationalism story, and it's the same elsewhere. You know, I come originally from India and the rise of Hindu nationalism. You look around, it's like that's the story everywhere, whether it's Myanmar, so Buddhist nationalism. And then I'm thinking we for a brief while maybe lost track of the Afghanistan story and where it's going in terms of 
the further rise of fundamentalism, Taliban, etc. But those are some of the big stories probably we'll, you know, be chasing again next year. Nicola Menzi and Faithful Magazine will continue to monitor the religion issues that most impact Christian communities of color. The mental health aspect, that's definitely like an area, I think, that's starved for coverage, especially in ethnic minority Christian communities. It's just not talked about as much as it should be. And of course, the uh, boarding schools impacting Native communities, you know, very eager to see uh, more than a dozen Christian denominations in the Catholic Church where they end up when findings will start trickling out at some point next year. I want to see what happens with that and where we can plug in. That sounds like a plan. See what happens and where we can plug in with more reporting on religion and spirituality. The best of beats. That's our show for this week, and in fact, our show for the year. My thanks to all the reporters who tolerated my questions and were so generous with their time, their insight, and their work. They are Michelle Borstein of The Washington Post, Kalpana Jane of The Conversation, Javed Kalim at The Los Angeles Times, Nicola Menzi of Faithfully Magazine, and Bobby Ross Jr. of The Christian Chronicle. We'll have links to all the stories they read from on this episode's page on our website at www.interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or by searching Interfaith Voices in the podcatcher of your choice. And you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review. It helps others find us. We'll also have a web-only bonus where our guests discuss the religion stories of the year that were underreported or missed entirely. This week's episode was produced by me, Kimberly Winston, Kevin McCarthy, and Umbreen Khan. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I am your guest host, Kimberly Winston, wishing you the best in 2022.